0: You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office.
1: This is Greg and Doug Stokes with Lanyap Podcast. Today is Monday, October 17th. We're coming off of a very volatile week starting this week with more volatility. Last Thursday, cpi numbers the inflationary numbers for consumers came out and the market was surprised negatively and then later that day swung back around and had one of the single biggest days in terms of percentage move from bottom to low in a long time Market was down three percent at one time on thursday and ended up three percent and then on friday the market proceeded to give basically all of what it had earned on thursday back and here we are today markets are up again pretty significantly. Doug, there's a lot going on right
2: now. What's your take on things? I just think it's a very fragile market. I don't think volatility in the way that we're seeing it, whether positive or negative, is a good thing. I think investors are on edge and trying to figure out if and when there's going to be a bottom. But with volatility, you know, markets are up 25 or 3% today. They were down 2% on Friday, up 3% on Thursday. It's very difficult for somebody that looks at this on a daily basis to gauge any sort of bearing as to where things are going. From an investment perspective, your and my day job is not to look at this on a daily basis. It's really to help people look at this from a longer term perspective. So we look at days like today and like Friday and Thursday, and it's just crazy, but it shouldn't have any sort of bearing as to how we're doing things. It's just very difficult from somebody that's just a casual observer and an investor and a client of ours to really feel any confidence around where things are going. That's really the difficult conversations that we're having right now. It's people are asking for advice and you know what do you do in these types of situations or what do we think? And it's really hard to have any sort of educated guess as to what's going on out there.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's been a brutal year is the way that I would describe it. From a total return standpoint, and this news is starting to get disseminated to the the public at large. I saw on the front page of the New York Post, this is a tweet from Sam Rowe. It says your average 401k is down 25%. So from highs. So I think people are seeing it that are, you know, your people that are involved in the management of their money, but it's also becoming something that's prevalent in society as well, too, how crummy things have been and and how brutal this year has been. Just from a pure historical standpoint, bonds are off to their worst start ever. At the beginning of the year, the 10-year treasury was like half of a percent or something like that. And on Friday, it touched 4%. So when yields go up like that, prices go down. Usually what happens when you have a sell-off in the stock market is the bonds basically serve as like a hedge and can buffer the volatility in the stock market. Side of the equation. But this year, the stocks have gone down and bonds have gone down with it. So it's been a really kind of crummy year for stocks and for bonds. Really, the only thing that's worked this year has been cash and oil stocks, things that people really were looking at very negatively for the previous 10 years. So it's been uh, really difficult. I sent you a chart with US stock versus bond returns 1926 to 2022. Basically, that chart indicates that it's one of the worst years for both of these two asset classes occurring at the same exact time. Both stocks and bonds are down significantly, putting us in the same periphery as 1960s and 1930s when really diversification did not work a whole lot. So, Like I said, it's been brutal. It's been very volatile. Like you mentioned, this is a tweet from today that 499 stocks in the S&P 500 are up this morning. 490 were down on friday it's just been all over the board negatively positively i think i own the one stock that's down today what is that just, altria oh really <laughs> <laughs> i know that's the uh part about that diversification that's no fun
2: yeah no i think one of the uh <laughs> one of the positives related to the volatility recently, specifically in the bond market. I'm looking at BlackRock's capital market assumptions. And what capital market assumptions are are just expected returns. It's really a statistical expectation of returns over periods of time. And I'm looking their expected returns over the next 10 years. What they do, which is interesting, is show it from like six months ago and then show it today. So their April 2022 expected return for a global 60-40 portfolio was 6.2% annualized. Now their expected return for a global 60-40 portfolio is 7.1% annualized. So downside volatility, so a drop in the stock market and a drop in the bond market just leads to forward expected returns being higher. And a lot of that's driven because the 40% side of the equation, the bond side, interest rates are much higher now than they were six months ago. But one silver lining here is because you've gotten one of these washout periods that you get every five or 10 years in markets, your expected returns going forward. So long as you believe that the American experiment and economic growth will continue into the future, you should expect that returns should be higher because everything's cheaper now than it was six months ago. So That's an interesting component. The biggest piece here that I find most interesting, this is BlackRock and this is also intuitive. Six months ago, their expected return for US real estate was 4.9% annualized. That was in April 2022. Now their expected return 0.8% annualized for the next 10 years. Interest rates are a big driver of that. If your mortgage is 7% plus or your bank debt, commercial mortgage-backed securities, whatever it is that you're collateralizing your piece of property with is, is around that, it's uh, very difficult to squeeze out any return. I wonder where that puts real estate
1: in New Orleans. If average national is gonna be 0.8%. Not looking to uh, it could be a value play. I doubt <laughs> it. Exactly. Yeah, I mean people are super negative right now in general. And if you read social media, you've got somebody will post something that says, okay, well, after these sorts of periods, typically, if you have like a negative 25% period, for example, that's happened like seven or eight times since the 1950s, a negative 25% drop in the SP 500. And if you look out prospectively, and this is from Ben Carlson, he wrote an article about this. The title of the article is Getting Long Term Bullish. But basically, the moral of that particular piece is after these big drawdowns, historically, markets typically recover and recover in a very positive fashion. And over the course of that history, there's only been one period over the one-year time frame that's been negative, but over three, five, 10 years, it's really been beautiful returns. But then if you look at the comments to those types of articles, it's all kinds of negativity and people act like they know what's going to happen and they're so negative, et cetera. And they may turn out to be right, but the whole point is that nobody knows what's going to happen. And if history is any guide, and that's really what we have to base all of this off of, now would be a good buying opportunity. And to do the exact opposite thing as what the crowd is doing. Just as the crowd was very enthusiastic six or 12 months ago at the end of the year when markets were at their high and nobody saw all of this negativity building up,
2: people equally are negative today. I think the bearishness is so obvious right now. It's almost as if the market prognosticators, it's a foregone conclusion that we'll have a you know, major leg down from here that you would expect the opposite to happen just by virtue of sentiment and herd chasing mentality. But yeah, it's like, of course, you know, now we're going into recession. So now we're going to have an earnings drop on S&P 500 earnings per share. And then you put a valuation on that, maybe 15 times earnings in a 20% earnings recession. Well, that will put the S and P 500 at 2,800 or 3,000. It sounds so obvious that that's where this is going from the perspective of people in financial news that you would expect just something clearly opposite to happen just by virtue of where the sentiment is now. Right. I mean,
1: retail, like the number of bearish bets in the market right now is at historic highs as well. Too consumer sentiment, the gauge on you know how consumers feel is very negative right now, historically negative. Everything is so negative. And usually that's really what the basis for bull markets is. And there's that famous Sir John Templeton quote that bull markets are born on pessimism, mature on skepticism. And then there's two other parts about <laughs> die it. Die <there>. on euphoria. <laughs> <laughs> what are the last two? <laughs> they grow on optimism then die on euphoria. Right. Exactly. And it, yeah. things are really freaking pessimistic right now. So one would think that that's really probably, you know, where we are in the sort of economic cycle of markets. I saw somebody post this as well, too, that was like kind of, you know, poking fun at, you know, the attitude of the retail investor and the way people are looking right now. And, and, uh, it was like a fake quote from Warren Buffett that says, sell your stocks before the CPI print tomorrow. Which is like, you know, obviously, (laughs) Warren Buffett's not, doesn't pay attention to the inflation print. This is a Warren Buffett quote that I just found. The stock market is a device which transfers money from the impatient to the patient. So I think that really says something right there.
2: Doesn't mean it can't go lower from here. Right. We'll hedge ourselves and say that we, like everybody else, don't know where the markets are going over the next, you know, several months. But people that are so confident about one thing, generally the opposite tends to happen. The market is a very good teacher and the lessons can be expensive. And so there's a lot of people that are betting negatively against the market. And and you just can expect just by experience that those major bets and points of conviction, things tend to go against you, at least in the short term. The other thing is like, just with all the CPI data as of late, a lot of the drumbeat around 1970s stagflation has been Brought up again. I saw a stat that was extremely interesting from the perspective of this whole dynamic of capital versus labor. And generally, over the last 20 years, for example, capital has been in control, meaning that wage inflation has really gone nowhere. And I guess the corporate class, the employer class has really had the upper hand. And so interest rates have been really low. Investment has been really high. Wage growth has been really low and profitability has been extremely high. And the question is, is that turning? And the statistic that basically says, hold on a second, it may not be you know, 1970s all over again, is that during the 1970s, one out of every three employees was a member of a union. And so unions had major bargaining power in the 1970s. There were also majorly corrupt institutions, if you followed like the Jimmy Hoffa story. But that's sort of a side note. My question around this is, right now, one in 10 employees is a part of a union. And so the employee has not unionized. Unions are not really in control like they used to be. And so there's not that major upward pressure on employers to really have major union benefits. And so, yes, you can see increases in wages specifically for people that are changing jobs right now. But I think that's just virtue of the demand side of the equation. It's really hard to find quality work. The economy itself, from the perspective of nominal GDP growth, from the perspective of unemployment, is still quite healthy. That could be changing in the next several months, just what the Federal Reserve has done. But going back to the argument that this is the 1970s all over again, the workers don't have the same bargaining power that they had in the 70s as it relates to that union power. So that may be something that we see over the next several years, that you don't get the same stickiness from wage inflation that you got 50 years ago because of that sort of dynamic.
1: Yeah. And I think the other thing you can say in line with the fact that this could not be or this may not be a stagflationary type of environment is that things just happen so quickly nowadays. Versus like, for example, like the COVID bear market lasted three months. We had a bull market that lasted a year and a half. And here we are back again with another bear market. Things happen very quickly. The same thing could be said about the sort of wage increases and numbers on inflationary numbers seem to like the prices of commodities have come down drastically. This could be like the sort of outcome of all this is that we look back at this as a Another one of these periods that we got through very quickly. Hopefully that's the case because that means that we're through this. But like, for example, right now, as we talked about it last week with shipping container rates, it's still more expensive to ship something from Europe or Asia to the United States, but it's like 21-month like lows. Gas prices have been decreasing over the last six months. Vehicle inventories are at their highest point since June of 2021. Just anecdotally, just ordering furniture, things like that. We purchased a couch and it took like 12 months for it to come in. And I asked the person that we bought it from how long it would take to order the same thing. She said like two or three months now. So things are working themselves out. There's always stickiness associated with with this. And it's just the nature of capitalism to try to continue to make money. And if the consumer is comfortable with paying a higher price, then so be it. But I think eventually this is going to wash itself out and that's my sort of base case. And hopefully it happens sooner rather than later and that sort of theory behind things moving more quickly than they did in
2: the past applies and that would be the case. Yeah, I also think a large part of core CPI is related to shelter and housing. Yeah, like owner's equivalent rent. Can you go into that a little bit more, Doug? Yeah, essentially the problem with CPI is that specifically as it relates to rent is that it's very difficult to get data from the market as to what renters are paying. And so owner's equivalent rent is a measure of how much money a property owner would have to pay in rent to be equivalent to their cost of ownership. So it's not necessarily what people are paying in rents. It's a reflection of the fact that people have been buying houses at a very appreciated rate over the last couple of years. And so they would have to rent that house out for X amount of dollars in order to recoup the increase in the value of the home. But the problem is that renters may not be paying that amount or homeowners may have overpaid. And so there's going to be some normalization or equilibrium there just based upon the fact that mortgage rates are 7% now. The value of those homes are just not what they were 12 months or 24 months ago. It doesn't mean that there's going to be a major crash in housing. Actually, I would expect that people are just going to hang on to their house and not sell it because they don't want to give up their 3% mortgage to get a 7% mortgage. So you may just get this period of very low inventory while rates sort of work themselves out over time with what the Federal Reserve is doing. But that whole idea that rent is going to be increasing at a substantially higher rate just to reflect what people overpaid for houses the last couple of years just may not materialize and that rents may just come down. And so that's just a major lagging effect that the Federal Reserve utilizes in its uh, assumption for you know, what the home would rent for. I would expect if we if we get an increase in unemployment, which it appears the Federal Reserve is trying to do to slow down the job growth because that's pushing wage inflation up, that rental market would come down pretty drastically. And that would be the big driver of CPIs, just generally rents slowing their growth or even uh, deflation in rental prices. So,
1: Doug, what happens if Putin nukes the Ukraine and we have a nuclear war? Is there any sort of uh, investment plan that you can utilize in that particular case?
2: Yeah, this is a great story. And I'm just going to read this story instead of explain it the moral of this story is when there's major binary outcomes, specifically like an Armageddon type scenario, maybe the better advice is just to buy. And the reason is this particular story. It is of Mike Epstein, who was a Navy SEAL in Korea before SEALs were a thing. And then he turned into a trader and the head of Market Technicians Association. But this is from 1962. The story is During the Cuban Missile Crisis, warships were parked off the coast of Cuba and the Soviet Union and the U.S. have nuclear weapons pointed at each other in the highest possible state of alert. The market is falling and Epstein is at the center of the action as a trader on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. He turns to his boss and asks what he should do. His boss tells him, hit the ask and buy him, meaning buy whatever is out there. And Mike politely questions the sanity of his boss because he realizes the world may be coming to an end in a nuclear holocaust. His boss tells him to keep buying. And he says, if they don't nuke us, the market will bounce. And if they do, you won't have to worry about paying for those stocks. <laughs> <laughs> and so the idea here is if there's a nuclear war, of course, I think we said this earlier this year, if there's a nuclear war, we've got other problems to deal with than price of stocks. But when there's such a major negative outcome there and a very low probability event, and that event doesn't come through, then you get a big bounce. And so I thought that was pretty funny that that story, especially after Biden last week said that we're concerned about Armageddon with uh, Putin's approach towards nuclear war. Right. Some things they're not even worth
1: even concerning yourself about, honestly. Right, exactly. So I'll leave you with a uh, philosophical comment, Doug, and I want to get your thoughts on this. This is from Arthur Schopenhauer. Sch- uh, I'm not going to even try to pronounce it. It's a German philosopher. He said, Wealth is like seawater. The more we drink, the thirstier we become, and the same is true of fame.
2: Tell me what you think about that. We talked about this several months back, but I think it's the question is what is the definition of wealth? My definition of wealth is time and freedom. And the ability to choose what you want to do with both your time and your freedom. And not necessarily the value of your portfolio or the amount of earnings that you have or the amount of material things that you have. And so I would say if you consider wealth to be a materialistic perspective and that you need to accumulate more wealth to satisfy whatever your need is, meaning more money, more things more property etc then that's probably a true statement but if you define wealth as a benefit that affords you the ability to spend more time with doing things or with people that you care about then i disagree with that statement well i don't necessarily disagree with it i think yes you want more you want more time you want more availability to be with i guess so yeah you would become thirstier but i disagree with the idea that you can't quench the thirst By getting wealthier, which I guess means affording more time with your family or your loved ones. Right.
1: Your mentality has to be different. And I do believe time is the most, that's the most valuable asset we all have. There are studies that show that they polled people, you know, across different net worth ranges and asked them the question, and this is from Morgan Housel's book, but basically the moral of the story is they polled people with a variety of different net worth levels and almost universally When asked how much money is enough, it's about two times what everybody has across different wealth levels. This is a German philosopher from the 1800s, but the empirical research points to the fact that it is a fact and that people always want more. But I think it's important to recognize that that sort of trait is innate and it's really important to frame it in the way that you're talking about, which is that Wealth exists to try to afford us time to spend with our family and loved ones, travel, et cetera, and not get caught up in the numbers because otherwise you're really going to never be happy because more is never enough, basically.
2: That's right. I think it comes back to, well, human beings in general, I think that we have a predisposition to try to progress forward and accumulation of things is sort of that instinctual previously if you didn't have enough food or shelter or water or whatever then you die and so i think that you know maybe this is just a an innate issue that we'll have as humans that we'll always want more but so long as more it's more of the right thing i think it's perfectly fine to have that sort of mindset you know more time in my case more availability to watch kids play baseball or travel or you know go to dinner with my wife things like that right i agree i agree 100 all
1: right well thank you guys very much for joining us we hope you guys enjoyed our podcast today and we'd love it if you gave us a five-star like share with your friends otherwise look forward to having you guys join us next week
0: thanks for listening to this episode of lanyap This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office and produced by Reverb. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com.